so wonderful to worship our Lord together and to welcome Him, even as the uh, crowds welcomed Him on that day. Uh, the question is, don't worry about it, Cassius. That's all right. Uh, the question is, who is the Jesus that we welcome? What are our expectations of Him? And if that Jesus does not meet our expectations, what will we do with him? I don't know if you've ever done an escape room. Some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but you can actually reserve time at a room and go there with a group of people. And this is a physical place that is filled with puzzles. Uh, it's very interesting, a lot of fun. My family did one last year, and everybody was able to participate because there's all kinds of puzzles. There are physical puzzles where you have to arrange things. There are verbal puzzles. There are logic puzzles and math puzzles, and you have to go around and find different clues. And there are puzzles within puzzles within puzzles, all eventually, hopefully, if you get the, puzzle, the answers right, leading you to the way out. Now, the pressure comes in in that you have a limited period of time. And if you don't solve all those puzzles in the right way before the time expires, then, then you have lost. It's interesting, nobody seems to have any issues with the fact that there is a right way and a wrong way to solve the puzzles. There isn't any dispute over uh, whose truth is the right truth or whose way is the right way. Everybody kind of acknowledges that you have one goal and you need to follow the correct path in order to get there. Well, let's imagine for a minute that it's real, that it's not simply a timer that expires and even if you lose, you can go off together and debrief and maybe try again that you're trapped and you don't know the way out and if you don't solve the puzzles after a certain period of time, you perish. And put that group in there and maybe they go in there with some confidence, hey, we've done some puzzles before, we're pretty smart, we can figure this out. But then you realize not only is it real, but it's far more difficult than you ever anticipated. The puzzles are unsolvable. And as the timer counts down and the panic sets in, the team falls apart, everybody's running around trying to figure out the right way. One says, hey, I know. One says, another says, I've figured it out. Confusion sets in, disorientation. And in the final minute, when everybody has given up hope, somebody walks in and says, I know the answer follow me. And everybody <laughs> puts aside their thoughts, puts aside their arguments, their imaginations, their expectations, and gets in line and follows that person out of the room to their rescue. Well, obviously, you know where we're going with that this morning. The fact is that Jesus is the way and that there is no other way and that everyone who follows him will be rescued and find eternal life. 
As we consider this more in depth, we're actually returning to the upper room and to John chapter 14. Jesus has been talking with the disciples. He just told the disciples that He is going to the Father and then that He will come back for them. And here's what He says in John 14, 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? One of the things we've been talking about as we've worked our way through the beginning of the upper room is the state of confusion and disillusionment that the disciples are in as they go through this conversation. They had had a set of expectations, and they were finding that those expectations were not going to be fulfilled and were very disoriented, hence all of the questions that they're asking here in the upper room. Now, they weren't confused a week before. A week before is this event that we've read about today and that we're celebrating today, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where the people welcomed him with shouts of joy and words of praise. And we know enough to realize that the symbolism involved with the laying down of the branches and, and Jesus riding on the back of the donkey's colt we know enough to recognize that that symbolism is replete with meaning from the secular world about a victorious king entering the city in triumph in order to establish himself as the one who rules. And we also know enough to recognize that the words that were shouted point directly to the fact that Jesus is the coming Messiah, the one that the people of Israel have been waiting on for hundreds of years and longing for his appearing. And so they worship him, and Jesus accepts that worship because it is true. He is the one who has come to conquer. He is the one who is establishing the kingdom. And so he welcomes that praise, but while welcoming that praise, he rejects their false expectations of him, what he will do next, who he is, and how he will lead him, them. Their expectations, this is the crowds of people as well as the disciples, their expectations are that he is the type of king who is coming to crush his enemies under his feet and finally, once and for all, to establish the kingdom of Israel, to reestablish it as the center of the political and religious world, to drive out the enemies, the Roman enemies who had been holding them in oppression and suppression, to bring the freedom that they longed for, 
and the power and the glory of a physical kingdom. That's what they expected. That's how they defined him. And Jesus rejected that. Over and over again, he had been telling his disciples, I am going up to Jerusalem where I will be delivered over to my enemies, where I will suffer many things at their hands and be crucified and die and rise again on the third day. But they didn't get it. They just couldn't fit that in with their expectations of who he was. In fact, remember, their conversations were still about who's going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. James and John are like, hey, can we sit on your right hand and left when you are in your throne of authority? They dispute among themselves who is going to be greatest alongside of Jesus. And then, even after he did die and rose again and appeared to them before he ascended into heaven, and was fellowshipping with the disciples, what do they ask? This is Acts chapter 1. Lord, is it now? At this time are you going to establish the kingdom? And Jesus once again has to say, hold on. Here's what's going to happen now. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses. Our tendency is constantly to define Jesus in our terms and in light of our expectations. And when that doesn't come through, confusion sets in, and doubt, and fear, and disorientation, and disillusionment. The amazing thing is that Jesus is so gentle and patient with us in these circumstances. When he was coming to Jerusalem, he wept. He wept because they didn't understand. And he longed for them to receive him as the Savior that he came to be. When his disciples in that upper room peppered him with question after question because they just didn't get it, Jesus says he's going away. Well, he must be going to, to do something, and we're going to go with him, and if we have to fight with him, we'll fight with him, and if we have to die, we're willing to die. And so Peter says, what do you mean I can't follow you? And Thomas says, how can we know where, we're, where you're going? We don't even know the place. Philip has a little bit more perception, realizes that the most important thing is that he knows the Father, but still hasn't got the idea that if he knows Jesus, he knows the Father. Later on, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, Judas, son of James, says, how, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not manifest yourself to the whole world? This doesn't make sense. They don't understand. And Jesus patiently and gently answers their questions. He's constantly correcting them. Even there, Acts chapter 1, after it's all taken place, before he ascends to the Father, he doesn't rebuke him. He just keeps explaining. Now, we know that he's not always gentle in his answers to people's questions. When the Pharisees use questions to try and trip him up or to lead others astray, 
He calls down judgment and woe upon them. He will brook no deception and no hypocrisy from those who ought to know better. You're Israel's teacher. How can you not understand these things? But for those who are deceived, for those who are confused, for those who simply do not understand, like the rich young ruler who comes to him with a question, and he's so very wrong, and Jesus loves him. Or the woman by the well in Samaria. She's lost so much hope. She's gone through so much disappointment. She is so very far from where she needs to be. And Jesus answers her questions. And he points himself out to her as the way. This is the Jesus that our world needs in this day. We're confused. Our broken world is filled with confusion. We have disconnected our lives from truth, from objective truth, as something that is outside of us and has the right to correct us and to call us to ways of truth. We've, we've disconnected that, and, and having unmoored the ship of our lives from the pillar of truth, people in our world are just out on the waves, blown back and forth, tossed by every wind of teaching. Completely confused as to the basic nature of reality and of life and of the future. Everyone's become a truth unto themselves, and that's just fine until my truth contradicts your truth, and, and then we start to have trouble because we will separate from each other, we fall into bitterness, anger, dispute, we find others who think like us, and so then you develop tribalism and mob mentality, and things are awful. And then as we continue to follow our own set of expectations and our understanding of the way things ought to be, we fall into disappointment and disillusionment because they do not satisfy. I thought I found the thing that was finally going to make me happy. Here he is. Jesus is going to establish the kingdom. This is awesome. But it's not how it turned out. Disillusioned, disappointed, confused, hopeless, because I've lost everything that I thought I dreamed of and wanted. Empty, because I sought satisfaction in things that only disappoint. Angry because I've been led astray by people who had bright promises but couldn't fulfill. And Jesus comes with his patience and says, 
follow me. I am the way. In this world, we need to point to Jesus. We need to show a disillusioned and disappointed world that Jesus is, first of all, the way. That's what he says in verse 6 here. To these confused disciples, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The idea, the, the word way is, of course, a very common word in the New Testament. It simply means a path or a road. In fact, in what's called the synoptic gospels, those are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called that because they all kind of have the same perspective on the life of Christ and describe it in similar ways. In those gospels, the word way is used 58 times, and most of the time it just means a road. And so along the way, they came across two blind men. Or as they were going on the way, something happened or something was said. John doesn't use this word that way. John uses this word in only two places. One place is here in this passage, and we read about the way several times. The other place is all the way back in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist, the prophet, is asked, what is he doing? What is his role? And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. So follow me here. John uses the word way only twice. He uses it here when Jesus says, I am the way, and he uses it in chapter 1 when he's pointing out that the Messiah is coming. This is a very clear declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus says, I am the way, he is, he is saying, I am the one who was anticipated in Isaiah chapter 40, where that quote comes from, make straight the way for the Lord. I am the one that you've been longing for. I'm the one that you've been anticipating. I am the way. But he's also made it clear that the way is going to a place that they didn't expect. He is the way not to a kingdom that will be established with authority in that day. He is the way to the Father, and the way to the Father leads through the cross. Jesus is the way through a cross to reconciliation with the Father. That is what he's pointing out to the disciples here. And he's also pointing out that he is not merely directing them along the way. He himself is leading them along the way. Have you ever been lost? You stop for directions. Well, you go down, and when you hit the gas station, you turn right, and then there'll be a house that has a white fence on it, and then you turn left, and then you go to the third road, and then you turn right again, and you're going to go about two and a half miles. You'll see some cows out in the pasture there, and then you turn left again, and that's really not a whole lot of help. And finally, they say, you know what? I'm headed out that way. Follow me. <laughs> okay, I can do that. <laughs> Jesus is the way. 
He's not simply pointing out directions and saying, go on, solve the puzzles, figure it out, and eventually you'll make your way out. He says, I am the way to the Father. Follow me. And he invites everyone to follow along that way. Next, he says here, I am the truth. This is truth with a capital T. This is not merely, Johnny, tell me the truth. This is Jesus establishing foundational principles upon which you can build your life. This is unchanging truth that is reliable. And even if the rains come down and the floods come up, the house that is built on the truth of Jesus will stand firm. Jesus doesn't merely, again, point out the truth. He himself is the truth. John said, Jesus came to us from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus then goes on to live out the truth, to bring the truth to us. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He himself is the vehicle of the truth. Then he points out the truth to those who need to follow it. And he's not merely pointing out facts that we need to know. He's pointing out truth that we can live. Later on, the Pharisees are like, hey, we know the truth. And Jesus says, you eagerly study the Scriptures because you think that in them you can know enough to find life. I'm the truth. Jesus is the kind of truth you can live, not simply know. John chapter 3, we can do the truth. What an interesting expression. That's the truth that Jesus is, truth you can live day in and day out. Jesus is the kind of truth that enables us to worship in spirit and in truth. Again, not just things you know, but life that you can live, a relationship that you can have with the Father. Jesus is the truth who can set you free. This is truth that is powerful. This is truth you can rely on. This is what he said, again, in that passage where he's disputing with the Jewish leaders. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in that dispute, when they're saying to him, we don't know you, we don't know where you came from, we're not going to trust in you, we've got Abraham for our father, we've got the truth that, he's been, that, that we've been studying and that we have in our minds, Jesus says, your father is the devil, the father of lies. Any other truth outside of the truth of Jesus Christ is a lie from the devil, meant to lead us astray, meant to lead us into destruction, meant to kill us and to destroy us. But Jesus is the truth that we can live and we can know and we can worship.
And then Jesus says again, John 14, 6, I am the life. When John talks about life, he is specifically talking about eternal life. In fact, it's interesting, when he wants to talk about preserving our life in this world, he uses an entirely different word. When John talks about life, he's talking about eternal life, and Jesus is life. Again, all the way back to John chapter 1. In him was life. In him. He possessed it. And that life was the light of men. It's so incredible how he describes it in John chapter 5. John 5, 26. Jesus says, Just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He is actually the spring of life, and he is the fountain of life. He is the source of all life. Every other life is derived from him. And he gives that life to anyone specifically who will believe in him. Anyone who believes in him can have eternal life. One of Pastor Mitchell's favorite verses in all of Scripture. These are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. Don't be deceived by so many others who promise life. It's a cheap imitation of the life that Jesus is. And it will fail because it has no source. It has no root. It has no foundation. It's empty words that come in order to lead astray and lead to death. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and the life that he gives can never be taken away. I love how he says, the one who believes in me has crossed over from death to life. It's already done. In Jesus' name, we're already located in the realm of eternal life, despite the sufferings and the disappointments and maybe even the unmet expectations that we have in this life. He gives life to the full. Each one of these things, the fact that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, they point to his mission here on earth. Remember, way is referring to the fact that he's the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one who was sent to lead his people to freedom. Jesus is the way. That's who he came to be. Jesus is the truth. When he's talking with Pilate, he says, that he came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. His purpose was to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to people in confusion, to people who are lost in the darkness, blown back and forth by every wave of teaching, by all the deceptive philosophies of men. He came to testify to the truth. 
and He came to bring life. I have come. That's His purpose, so that we can have life and have it to the full. And He makes it very clear that the way that we attain this life is through knowledge of the Father. In John 17, 3, Jesus prays, and He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life doesn't come from following some philosophy and being committed to it to the very end. Eternal life doesn't come by making our own way and figuring it out and trying to be better than maybe the bad things we've done so that in the end it weighs in our favor. Eternal life doesn't come because we have acknowledged the truth of a set of facts, because we've gone to church all our lives, because we've done the things we're supposed to do. Eternal life comes because we know the Father by knowing Jesus Christ. And so we see that Jesus is so very clearly saying here that He is the only way to the Father. Poor Philip's still confused. Jesus just said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and it seems like he's okay with that. In fact, he recognizes what he really needs to do is to know the Father. And so he says, well, Jesus, just show us the Father. That's going to be enough for us. He accepts what Jesus is saying, but he still doesn't get the idea that he doesn't need Jesus to point out something else so that he can get to the Father, but that Jesus himself is the way. It's not Jesus plus some special knowledge. It's not Jesus plus certain actions that we add to it. Jesus says in reply to Philip, do you still not really get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. The works that the Father wants, those are the works that I am doing. The things that the Father says, these are the things that I am saying. I am the way and the truth and the life. Follow me, know me, love me, and serve me. And so we see the, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in His offer to us of the way of salvation. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's not Jesus among the various options. It is Jesus, period. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Back in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he uses the definite article purposely. If you see the definite article in the Greek language, it's there for a reason. Jesus is pointing himself out exclusively. There is no other. He is unique in the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's not just this passage here. Throughout the book of John, he's made it clear in John 3, he made it clear, apart from him and belief in him, we will be condemned. In John 5, he alone is the one 
who has authority to make judgment. In John 6, he is the only bread of which we must partake in order to have eternal life. In John chapter 8, if I can see my notes, (laughs) unless you believe in me, you will perish. It's a theme throughout this book, not just in this one simple place. Jesus is the only way. And that's a hard truth. It was a hard truth in Jesus' day. End of John chapter 6, after he has made these exclusive claims about who he is, his disciples, not the twelve, but others, start to go away. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? He has said, it's not about Moses. He has said, it's not about me establishing a kingdom. They had just wanted to make him king in John chapter 6. He had said, you must partake of my life if you're going to have eternal life. And they're like, you know what? That's a little bit odd for us. We're going to follow somebody else. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter Got to love Peter. Where else can we go? You alone. You alone have the words of life. It's a hard teaching because we want to make a way. We want to figure out the puzzle. We want to find the solution. We want to show that, well, actually, we're okay. Basically, a good person. Going to figure out our way to the Father. We can be amiable, generous, kind, sacrificial of our time and our resources. But brothers and sisters, that is just living out common grace. That is not the experience of the special grace of our Lord that brings salvation. That only comes through Jesus Christ. And when we start to talk about the uniqueness of Christ in this way, it makes us uncomfortable as well because of those who have not yet heard. Isn't that a hard question? What about all those people who haven't yet heard the name of Jesus Christ? If Jesus is the only way, then what about them? And here is where we again try to make Jesus in our image. Well, my Jesus would never. That's idolatry. Building Jesus in our image that he fulfills our expectation is idolatry and is a lie from the devil, and it doesn't do anybody any good because they need to know the Jesus who is, not the Jesus who somebody might want him to be. And if it's a hard truth for us to accept, can we also realize that it was a hard truth for Jesus to live? Remember, the eternal second person of the divine trinity, in all of his glory, He didn't need any of his creation. Entirely sufficient, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in perfect fellowship and unity, loving each other. 
And that glorious Christ emptied himself. Why would God put aside glory in order to be bound in humble flesh? And became obedient to death. Why would eternal, unending, all-knowing, all-glorious God submit himself to the humility of death on a cross if there were some other way? Jesus went to a cross that we deserved for no other reason than that was the way then He is the way and no one else. And the glorious thing about that cross is not only is it unique in the fact that He is the only way, but it is entirely inclusive in the fact that that way is open to everyone. Jesus says, I am the way, and anyone who follows me follows me to eternal life. Jesus says, I am the truth, and anyone who believes can have eternal life. Jesus says, I am the life, and anyone who feeds on me, anyone, anywhere, throughout all time, the glory of the gospel is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, regardless of their background, regardless of cultural background, regardless of, of religious background, regardless of personal sin, regardless of the depths of perversion that we may have been led into by the lies of this world, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. So then how do we respond? to this Jesus who calls us to Him, not to some imagination or expectation of our own, but to Jesus only. First of all, we let that compassion that we feel for those who have not heard motivate us to follow Him. We're going to be talking later on about the fact that He said, if you follow me, you will do greater works than I could ever do. And he's talking about the fact that we can bring the gospel to the ends of the earth so that there are not those who have not heard. Let's not let our compassion lead us to redefine Jesus in the image we want him to be. Let's let our compassion redefine who we are and what our values are so that we will live out the life He intended us to live for the sake of the world. We can respond to Him. And this is not just a word for someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. It is. If you've been defining Christ in your image. This is a word for you. But it's a word for us who are given to define Christ in terms of power, and to define Christ in terms of a kingdom that we long to establish on this earth. 
Let's stop worshiping a Christ made in our very own poor image and follow the Christ who is uniquely, lovingly, faithfully, and certainly the way. And then, in times that are confusing, when we have been disappointed, when we are distressed, when things aren't turning out the way that they thought they would turn out, let's keep looking to Jesus. He is the way. Let's follow Him step by step every day. We will find that He leads to the Father. He is the truth. Let us believe Him, trust Him, fall on Him, no matter what our circumstances are. He's reliable. And He is the life. Let us feed on Him daily. Not put Him off on some shelf because we've got our own life to live, but feed on Him and let His life well up within us and overflow to those around us. That's what He calls us to as we welcome Him into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives on this day that we celebrate His triumphal entry. Let's pray together. Jesus, we worship you. And by your grace, we seek to worship you for who you are. Not what we want, what we think we want you to be. Not what perhaps we've imagined you to be all of our lives. But who you are. Eternal God made flesh who loved us enough to go to the cross for our sake. How can it be that you bore our sins and died in our place? But now resurrected, triumphant over death and the grave, and exalted, worthy of all glory and honor and praise, worthy of every ounce of our energy, every moment of our day, Thank you. Thank you that you are so much greater than we could ever imagine you to be. That you are so much more loving than we've ever thought that love could be like. You are so much more glorious than any of the created things that we try to pursue in our life. We welcome you. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.